Of course, the Necrosword. In honor of Thor, Love and Thunder, what's cinema's greatest mythical weapon? I'm at mm. Patches and, uh, I don't know, I gotta say the lightsaber, right? Like, it's the lightsaber. I'd be denying greatness, even though it's so popular. It's a lightsaber. <laughs> hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I'm gonna go with Medusa's severed head from Clash of the Titans, okay, but also from mythology, because it's just, it's awesome. It's more than a sword. It's a, it's a whole thing. Uh, and I'm David Ehrlich, and the internet is telling me that the one ring of power from the Lord of the Rings qualifies as a weapon. I suppose in the wrong hands, it would be. So, in that case, I can go with the one ring of power. Uh, but it's I was also, the first thing that came to mind was far dumber than that, uh, which was the rabbit's foot, the mysterious rabbit's foot from Mission Impossible <laughs> 3. Oh, that rabbit's foot. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's it's awesome. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room number 399. It's Pandemic 120 for the week of July 6th. And on that day in 1928, a film called Lights of New York, the first all-talking motion picture, was shown in New York for the first time. What is there all? You go. What's all talking? Mean? It means that like on this podcast, someone is talking <laughs> at all times. Uh-huh. It's Just all, the drone enti- of the human voice. Uh-huh. Entirely sync sound uh, movie. Uh, 1928. That's uh, that's how long we've been living with it. Almost almost 100 years of showing talkies in New York. Uh, we we, we might still make it that far. Uh, as I you guys, if the person who uh, invented the talkie feels like Oppenheimer, just like uh, what the mistakes that I've made. And <laughs> what's only we what's weird back. about Lights of New York is that uh, legions of 16 uh, year old boys showed up to see it in suits and then shouted, <laughs> chanted, "Lights, lights, lights!" in the lobby. <laughs> Uh, yes, that's that's a reference to the animated movie that together with uh, Top Gun Maverick has saved cinema this year, uh, Minions Rise of Gru. Uh, you might have noticed from uh, the rough start that Katie Rich is not here taking her usual host position. She is off on a much needed vacation. I'm sure it's much needed. Uh, she seems to be very gracious about it. And we, the dudes of Fighting in the War Room, are here once again to dude off about some stuff uh, in her off week. But before that, I should ask, David, do we have reviews? Lights. 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 Let me just chat lights for an hour and uh, (laughs) make Katie regret that vacation. Um, We do seem to have a handful of reviews here. Let's get to it. Liz Anya says, I don't like being held hostage. If you know, you know. (laughs) We we all remember Liz Anya from her famous hostage situation um i'm changing an old review because i made it before there was the constant threat of star wars galaxy of heroes talk on this podcast (laughs) i'm not sure if you'll see the change we have but my rating stays the same five stars but please free us from this constant threat for not leaving reviews we're all just trying our best well (laughs) clearly you're trying your best but i don't know if that's true of everyone out there because if it were there would be no threat to have new reviews on a uh, weekly basis but, um, you know, if the reviews keep rolling in, then there is no threat. You know, it's just uh, it's just an ima- imagined thing. So much has um, happened in Galaxy of Heroes since we yeah, last I talked mean, about it. It is. It is. And we are not going to talk about this because we're keeping up our end of the bargain. But it is uh, newly urgent for me because there is now a feature of Galaxy of Heroes that I truly do not understand and need Dave to explain to me and refuse to ask about in any other forum than this. So we don't have interview. We don't have reviews, rather. So uh, kind of looking forward to that. But in the meantime, grateful for your review. Or your re-review, I should say. Uh, Coleslaw74 says a good friend for over a decade. Now, I wonder if I'm right that this person's first name is Cole. Cap- mm. and, and, and this line, it's just clever. I don't know. There's just something about the capital C jumped out of me. Making, making assumptions here. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure that it's uh, very obvious. I've been listening since the early Opkino days. I don't even remember when I started listening, but I do remember cheering when Dave put Drive on his top 10 list of 2011 or so. Oh, 2011, so. I guess I've been listening about that long. As others have noted, Fighting in the War Room benefits from its four hosts not always agreeing. Their chemistry is great, and they come across like four knowledgeable friends bantering and keeping each other in check. 
Fighting the worm has been with me through highs and lows of my life. Oh my God, I just saw a few words in the next sentence that bring me back to a point <laughs> I almost made when talking about this person's name. So, uh, so everyone get hyped. Uh, fighting in the war room has been with me through highs and lows of my life, and it's always there when I need to escape a bit and feel comforted by familiar voices I've come to really rely on for all things pop culture. Here we go. I distinctly remember listening to Patch's take on Mr. Holland's opus. Oh, wow. Which is, of course, where my mind immediately goes when seeing the name Cole. <laughs> as I walk through a lonely Japanese street on a rainy day. Later that summer, I, humble brag, later that summer, I listened as Patches announced Katie had her first baby while I walked the streets of Sapporo, five months pregnant myself. I've always appreciated how much of themselves the host put onto this show. And I think it's a rare podcast that it can allow its host to grow while the audience grows along with them. That doesn't mean the host never misspeak or overstep. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Cole Slaw 74, that is certainly going to happen this episode. We should uh, note to Ben A for our listeners. Patches is having a bit of lag issues. Uh, so prepare for things to be even worse than that. That's usual. what you think she means by overstep? Yeah, Listen, that's right. I, I mean, Instead you know, of me I, being like, here's how to commit mail fraud and I have to cut I think out I the podcast. Of, I combined misspeak and overstep with speaking over each other ah. in my head. I still hold a grudge from Patch's claim that Germany's national anthem is a march and very German. Germans, Germany's <laughs> national anthem is a lullaby written by Austro-Hungarian composer Franz Joseph Haydn, who hummed it to himself on his own deathbed. But that's a small price to pay for well over a decade of informed entertainment. I can't imagine my podcast list without fighting in the war room, so I hope you all will keep doing this podcast through at least another decade of life's up and downs. I really love this review so much. I, I don't know if Cole is a unisex name or if I was just way off base with the Cole, 70, Cole Slaw 74 thing, but in the event that I was, I, it I, makes I, it even eerier that they referenced Mr. Holland's beautiful, opus. Beautiful, because, beautiful, beautiful <laughs> Cole. Because <laughs> if if in the event that the Mr. Holland's opus reference is purely random and their name isn't Cole, Man, patterns, man. The universe doing some crazy <laughs> shit right now. Uh, I, I, know, I know Coles that are, that are uh, women presenting, so I think okay. it, it could be either. I don't, but glad to know they're out there. Uh, cool. And also cool that this person, whatever their name is, uh, lives or has lived in Japan. Uh, that sounds fun. It's a dream of mine. I think at this point, probably not going to be realized, but... Uh, uh, very cool. Thank you so much for listening for the review. And finally, interrupting isn't fighting, says Matt Riznes. Riznay? Riznes? Riznes? Who gives us, I think it's not that last one, uh, gives us three stars and says, talking over each other in the war room. Uh, true. Was this review helpful? That was it. All these reviews were. Oh, yeah. Can't disagree. Um, Thank you to everyone, including Matt Riznes. Riz, I don't know why a six-letter last name is giving me so much trouble. Um, but I guess we'll never know unless they leave us another review that bumps us up to four bad, stars. Bad at names. So much time. Four stars, bad at names. <laughs> four stars, just for spending so much time talking about them. Uh, please go on iTunes. Leave us a review of Fighting in the War Room. We'll read it on the show, clearly. Uh, I don't know if we'll read it clearly, but clearly we will read it on the show. If you are not in the United States or uh, maneuvering in the case of Cole's Law 74 in the event they're still in Japan to get onto the United States Apple Store uh, or iTunes Store, Podcast Store, whatever the fuck they call it now, you can email us. Dave, where can they do that? At fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. You the calling man, you send you up, reason calling nine to nine two so alright. Alright, it's gotta be a lot of me talking this episode because I we stepped into the hosting duty. Yeah, that's yeah, everybody everybody likes it. Um uh, it's time to talk about Stranger Things or Volume Two, which consists of two episodes that <laughs> was like almost six hours. <laughs> Uh, I watched it. Um, <laughs> okay. We, we watched it. We talked about the we first did volumes a little bit. Yeah. So this is, this is a bit of a continue for that. I thought that volume was probably the next best stranger Things season besides season one was what I said, uh, back then. Now I have the whole, uh, shape of it. And I think that still stands true. What it turns out this season was, and I could have guessed uh, with just seeing volume one, but definitely now that I've seen volume two, I know for 100% that's what it is. 
Uh, this is Empire Strikes Back uh, of Stranger Things. Um, it's all of our main characters in on separate little missions. Uh, they break apart at the end of last season, and they stay apart for basically all of this season. Uh, although there is a climactic sequence where everybody's working on the same problem, they are still geographically far apart. What I are they trying the to, to accomplish in this? I, I, I'm still waiting to, for someone to say, like, why everyone loves Stranger Things, because it really seems, especially after this final two episode, very long two episodes, I've just seen so many reactions like this show has really grown into something. This show has become so much better than the pastiche that of the of the first season. And I'm just but I, I still haven't heard someone say, like, here's why it's good. Or like, here's what the characters are doing. That's interesting. Or here's what the plot uh, keeping what what's keeping it going. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to your like these these epically sized episodes, which I've also seen described as kind of bloated, um, like what what's working on this show on a more specific level? Like, what is it about and where is where is it been going for you? I mean, I think the second season was uh, rushed narratively uh, to give us a whole bunch of things that uh, like, let's say the one that was the episode. mind player one, right? That was the. Two and three are Mind Flayer ones. Okay. Uh, So two is just the Mind Flayer as a shadow, and it's possessing will. (laughs) Now, is the Mind Flayer related? I'm sorry if this is an ignorant ignorant question because I haven't watched the show, but is the Mind Flayer related to Chris Angel, the Mind Freak? (laughs) No. No. All right. Let me try to do a rundown here. It's actually related to Guy Fieri, Mind Flayer. Um, (laughs) Oh, great. I mean, it might spoil part of Stranger Things. and dies. Or volume one, but... If you haven't hooked into Stranger Things yet, uh, this might be the thing that helps you because it sounds like you might be in Patches' camp. So, uh, Stranger Things 1, Will Byers gets sucked in this place called the Upside Down. They fight a a monster called the Demogorgon and they find a psychic girl who's been experimented on. It turns out she opened the door of the Upside Down and she blasts the Demogorgon back into it. Uh, that is all very, very relevant to the rest of the show. Good. Season two, uh, they up it to the Mind Flayer, which is the shadow being that stays in the Upside Down, but is, you know, slowly sending these smaller demigorgons called Demo Dogs uh, into Hawkins, and they have to stop it. Uh, the psychic girl, Eleven, from the first season learns more about her origin story, which includes meeting a group of punk-dressed people like her in Chicago that have psychic powers that are using it to take revenge on people that experimented on them. Uh, Don't worry about that. We never reference that again. It's like Ever come back? Wow. Nope. That's so weird. Season three, they realize season two is a little bit rushed, and they're like, what we did was like 80s pastiche, so let's make this season about the mall and the Russians. Uh, But hey, it's the Mind Flayer this time, except instead of being stuck in the upside down, he is creating a meat version of himself uh, that eventually attacks the mall and Eleven and kills the character Max's brother Billy. Now, when you say a meat version of himself, is this you just mean like a flesh and blood creature that can come to the real world, or is he actually made out of like deli meat? He possesses people, and then those people dissolve into their meat components, and then those meat components form to make a bigger meat creature. Great. Salami, so pepperoni. Of- no notes. Ham. <laughs> uh, the fourth season, as we're into it, is oversized, but as I implied, really reads like the second chapter in terms of story. This is the one where the heroes are separated. They're dealing with their personal issues. They learn more about the Upside Down, but more importantly, they're headed towards a gigantic showdown with the Big Bad. And in this season, it is revealed what the Upside Down is about. Uh, the Mind Flayer was not the be-all, end-all we thought it was in terms of who was behind the Upside Down. And the um, explanation we're given ties back into one of our characters' uh, backstory, which means not only do we get uh, last in Stranger Things 4 Volume 1 a little bit of that uh, digital de-aging trick, uh, but now it feels like uh, for the first time, I think, since the first season that maybe all of Stranger Things is telling a coherent story 
about like self-discovery and friendship whereas i think we went on some tangents uh, for the other season uh, but this one ends not with uh, wrapping things up but very empire strikes back like with a direction of what the final battle is going to be and all of our heroes finally assembling for the only time uh at the end of the season uh much like we're about to go to jabba's palace to save han uh, so I see the reason why I think people are accepting this so well is like a lot of television shows, uh, but like, let's say Lost, uh, once you know that you're in the end game, you're allowed to do end game things and Stranger Things volume, Stranger Things 4 feels like they could finally do end games thing. It's not just keeping a balloon up in the air. So season two and three was like Paolo or whatever, whatever, like just trying to find other places for the characters to go. And now they're actually getting back on the plot rails and and having arcs and such uh it's not just yes. mini adventures okay that makes sense I, there there are arcs there are things that have obviously started in this uh installment that are going to end in next season the final season uh at least of this narrative uh stranger things five and um yeah i it this one feels confidently like they know where they're going it is absolutely overstuffed uh, especially after you see the end of volume two, you're like, I could have done this entire journey in six hours and probably had the same highs uh, as I got with the 11 hour version or whatever. Maybe let's let's dig into that a little bit uh, to, to wrap it up, because and, and David, you may have thoughts here, too, because one thing I'm trying to get over and this is just a mental hurdle is like, I don't necessarily want to watch a two and a half hour. Stranger things that sounds really daunting for whatever reason, even though I'd probably sit and watch like three episodes of Stranger Things and binge watch it or whatever and, and watch just the same amount if they were 45 minute episodes. But there's something about them purposefully creating a two and a half hour episode that feels like it like it, ha it has some sort of mission, like it, it means something to have a two and a half hour episode. And I'm wondering what that is. Does that make it seem epic in kind of a superficial way do we use runtime to to talk about things that are, are huge and eventized is that the only reason it's that size or is there a storytelling reason why it's two and a half hours and is all this psychology like nonsense in the in the binge tv era like why why is why do why release well i know why they released two i know why there's a part two to all of this which is part of it came out in like a different month. So now you have to subscribe to Netflix for two months to watch all of the stranger things. But I don't totally understand why there's a two hour stranger things movie and a two and a half hour stranger things movie that basically just came out when there could have been many episodes. Uh, I think there's a possibility that the everything except the finale episode could have been trimmed or rearranged to be something like what you're looking for, which is like, some of the best episodes of TV like stand alone and push the narrative forward. I don't think there's anything like that in Stranger Things 4. It's all one long narrative. I'm looking for quibbies. Quick right. bites. No, you there's see? no quick bites. The thing that really makes Stranger Things 4 at least sort of feel like it's intentional is by the time you get to that two and a half hour episode, that episode feels the shortest out of all the episodes of the season. Because by the time you get there, you know the geography of everybody, you know everybody's intention, and you know the plan that they have to execute. And it's literally like 40 to an hour and 15 minutes can, worth of just executing that plan. Can we do a spoiler gong where you explain how the backstory plays into this for, 30, for 90 seconds? Just because I find listening to you talk us through Stranger Things more entertaining <laughs> than I imagine watching this series might be and i think people out there some people anyway might feel the same way i almost need sure. the spoilers to get more hooked i think yeah yeah we'll spoiler gong it here we go so the end of volume one uh ended with the revelation that vecna who they thought was like a general of the mind flayer but basically like a super powerful wizard uh -huh. is actually uh number one uh the first brenner test subject who, uh, before he was tested on with his psychic powers, used those psychic powers to murder his family because he is a sociopath that does not believe human life is worth living. 
uh, eleven. He's Republican. Him. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe uh, eleven fought him and uh, blew him into the upside down uh, before Stranger Things started. And um, when we see Eleven in the first season dis- discovering the upside down. Uh, she was not being sent there to search to spy on the Russians like we were told. She was being sent uh, to try to find number one uh, for Dr. Brenner. But number one got to this other dimension that was the Upside Down and being a super powerful psychic just bent it all to his will. So he was the sentience behind the Mind Flayer the entire time. He is the, the hive mind behind all of the Upside Down it's going to be one versus double ones uh, in the final season. Mm. Yeah, okay. That, I guess that's going to be Stranger Things. <laughs> pretty, yeah. It sounds pretty strange. Yeah. It is, but you know, it makes sense. I, I, mean, I don't regret asking, but I am not left with any greater desire. It's, to, one, it's 100% yeah. just Empire Strikes Back. Like, Eleven leaves very early on in the season to go do training. She leaves that training too early because her friends are in trouble. It's just like a lot of this stuff tracks to be Empire Strikes Back in the sense that also they lose at the end of this uh, installment. Uh, not that anybody really notable dies, which sort of feels like a cop out, but they uh, definitely the last shot of this season is them all looking over Hawkins that has erupted into an upside down portal, the whole town. Sure. So we're going to see what happens there in Stranger Things 5 in like two years, probably. And then we'll be done. Then we will have done all of the Stranger Things. And then the spinoffs will begin. Those kids are going to be so repeats old. itself and it will never end. I mean, the upside I, down will never be righted. I want to write on a Stranger Things spinoff. I want to do a 90s episodic television nostalgia show that's just like, remember X-Files and Twin Peaks? I would write that show. Let's do it. Finish your Flight of the Navigator remake first, and then we can talk. I mean, Disney Plus already greenlit that with somebody other than us patches, so I think that should be sailed. But Stranger Things 2, uh, Stranger Things with two S's, that, uh, or Stranger Things 90s, I don't know, we could still do that. Iris. Okay, uh, for the second half of the show, we're going to scrap our mini segment and do a slightly bigger chat about Thor because there's a Thor movie coming, but there's also some good Thor comics that I think everyone should go back and read. And uh, a lot of what Thor Love and Thunder, the movie will be discussing in this final segment, uh, a lot of inspiration has been drawn from um, some comics directly, perhaps more directly than almost any other Marvel movie, Dave, you'll have to fact check on that. Probably since winter soldier, I feel like no, no Marvel movie has drawn so directly from the comics, at least iconography wise. And, um, and uh, from newer, uh, yeah, co- yeah. newer comics, especially. So the run that I-, I wanted to bring up and really recommend at the top of the segment here is this, uh, Thor God of thunder run. It's from 2012. If you have a Marvel unlimited account, or if you dip in and, and subscribe for a few months or something where you can read almost every old Marvel comic. Uh, you can definitely do what I did and, and kind of read through this great old run from 2012. It's from Jason Aaron and Azad Ribic. Um, and it is pretty phenomenal. I've never been a, I've never been much of a Marvel comic reader. I'm trying to do more of that as the Marvel cinematic universe dominates mass culture um and go back and and read some of these pivotal stories dave you and i were talking about the um all the marvels book uh that i turned you on to are you enjoying that book you were tweeting about it and reading about it um oh yeah no that was my book last weekend i've been trying to do by relevant Douglas books to Walk. the book i'm writing yeah uh every week so that was my last weekend book and i really enjoyed it and the book is is literally just running through the history the continuous continuity because if people don't know 
in Marvel Comics, they've never really rebooted like DC has. There hasn't been an implosion of universes and a way to organically just change everything if they wanted to shake up the universes. It's one continuous, you know, story, essentially, from the beginning of Marvel Comics way back in mid 20th century to now, like everything counts as as continuity. That's basically Doug's premise. Like if that, if this existed one story, he'll write through it. And um, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, but as as he tells it too, like, I don't think there's been great Thor stories throughout the years. And I think a lot of people wonder how to use Thor or try to figure out how he could be part of the Avengers. And he's so He's a god. He's so big and he has he's he's mighty. He has powers that very few characters in the Marvel universe can contend with. Um, and what Jason Aaron and Azad Ribic do in this 2012 series is, is really try and put that all into perspective. He is a god. There are many gods scattered throughout the Marvel universe, uh, but maybe there could be a character who who contends on an existential level with the gods and physical level with the gods that and enter uh, the god butcher what a gore the god butcher i should say um and this character that that jason invented um is it's just staggeringly frightening and and bleak that's the other thing with the marvel comics and especially the marvel movies i was i was trying to rack my brain you two tell me like What's the most tragic thing that has happened throughout 12, 13 years of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Uh, there's not a lot of like high drama. I, I guess the snap was pretty scary, but undone in a year. Um, Does is there great casting Chris Pratt in the <laughs> lead role count? <laughs> no, I think I casting mean, I think it was it, Mario is going to be a greater tragedy. Mm. We'll uh, yeah, I think it was the snap only because like if you read the comics and you know about like movies, that right. wasn't a big deal. But they did end Infinity War with half the cast being dead, and that was a big deal for I, I fans. I strongly disagree. Uh, I I think because the, there were no stakes baked into that. I think everyone knew that it would be undone in some way, and I still to this day cannot wrap my head around the emotionality that people felt at seeing characters turn into black ash, knowing full well they would be reversed back to life and into meat form uh, a year later. <laughs> it baffles me. But I, I do think that Endgame, you know, ending with Tony Stark's death and having oh, sure. is a child, right? Am I keeping the timeline straight that he has a child? No, he doesn't have a kid anymore. He does. No, he has a he, has he does a, have he a does kid. Yeah, a kid, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, a kid yeah. who's going to grow up without a father. That's that's a lasting tragedy in the Marvel Universe. Um, it didn't. It, She'll not, get her not own to movie. The I mean, Don't worry. Sure. But to Patch's point, I mean, I think it is infrequent enough that this happens that when um, and I, is this a spoiler? I don't know. It happens in the first 20 minutes of the movie, so I'm going to say no. Um, when Thor, and it's also founded in the comic books. This the is one Thor, thing I know you're talking about, about Thor and Love and Thunder. You're Love and Thunder, okay, right? Yeah, the, one, sure. the, the one thing about Thor, Love and Thunder that is founded in the comic books is that um, when Jane is, it's revealed to us that Jane has stage four cancer in the first 20 minutes of this movie. Um, sure. it, it struck me as something very un-Marvel cinematic universe-like in a way that I appreciated. Not that I... Know, have any bear any ill will towards Jane and uh, want less Natalie Portman right. in my life, but I, I appreciated the uh, the, the fact that it seemed like real world stakes. Yes, yeah, I think that's why people always wanted Marvel to tackle the Demon in a Bottle saga with with Tony Stark and like see this man be an alcoholic or try and deal with something real. There's not a lot of harsh reality in the Marvel universe for obvious reasons. It's not necessarily criticizing the movies. For, for not being dark and bleak uh, and, and grounded human drama. Uh, but what I was struck by with the Jason Aaron comics is it's still this gigantic, vivid space odyssey or, or fantasy odyssey. Um, Thor always has a way of mixing the two of those when you realize that Asgard is just one place in space. But uh, when when Gore, the god... Hey, uh, Patches, yeah. I have to correct you. I have to correct sure. you. I'm sorry. sorry. Um, Asgard is not a place. It's a people. <laughs> yeah. Yes. How could I forget uh, your your personal mantra as well? Um, yeah. So Gore, the God Butcher, enters the story with with a with a chip on his shoulder and wants to 
do away with gods. Why do we need gods? It's a really uh, important question that rational people have asked themselves. And in throughout the comics, he is finally he is, Nietzsche being introduced <laughs> to the Marvel Cinematic yeah. Universe. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, and, and, and asking those big questions is what fantasy comics can do so well. And it is presented as high drama and the design for gore is he just has a giant blade hand and he's just ripping people apart. And there's just lots of, of, of murder. I mean, there is lots of butchering going on and it was really frightening to see when someone like Thor is scared to the point where Jason Aaron has to split timelines. He, he follows a young Thor, a kind of middle-aged Thor and an elderly Thor who has not figured out how to defeat Gore quite yet. Um, he's tracing different timelines and it is a really intricate, again, bleak. I would, I would call it bleak because there's really, it doesn't seem like there is any hope and, and Jason Aaron has a way of towing the line where it's just like you, you unlike what you're describing with the infinity war end game jump where you, we kind of know what will happen. We know things will be undone. It's his, his kind of 12, I think it's 12 issues of telling Gore's story. You just really don't know how things can come out the other end. Um, even though, you know, Marvel will continue on and Thor will continue on at some point. Gore greets Gore creates the God bomb that will eventually obliterate all God entities in the world. And just like, and, and he has gods doing his bidding. He has enslaved God society. And it is just really scary. Um, so that brings me and pivoting to you guys with Thor love and thunder. I mean, well, I should also say that of course the, the Jane, uh, Thor stuff has also happened in the comics. And that was also a Jason Aaron creation that it, it's interesting. Uh, and I want to hear more about how they kind of weave these two things together, but they're totally different timelines. Like the, the gore, the God butcher story is not connected to the Jane Foster story at all. Um, but it still has to do with Thor trying to figure out like what being a God really means what the responsibility is being worshipped and then having other people and then being not worthy the story in the comics is that thor cannot pick up his hammer anymore and somebody else mysterious has and everyone is offended that a lady has picked up the hammer um and no one knows that it's jane for the almost like the entire jason run which i think is also really interesting but um all of this kind of comes together and it feels really existential and then this movie when i saw the trailers i'm like oh wow this is this is taika watiti this is fluffy and fun and we're making a lot of jokes and there's iconography there but i can't imagine it is bleak but maybe i'm totally wrong and i want to hear about if there's like a w um, different kind of movie hiding under the surface of thor love and thunder and the, the issue with thor love and thunder uh is also what i appreciate about it i mean in that it, it does make more of an effort than some other Marvel movies have uh, at at allowing that tragedy into its bones and grappling with it on a human level, but it is at war with itself as in terms of, um, as its title suggests in a way, it's like how serious it's going to allow this to be. It still has so many obligations to the MCU tenor, um, the lightness that Taika Waititi brings to it. I mean, Ragnarok was also heavy in its way. Um, this I found more intimately so, uh, but it's definitely a struggle for this movie to balance um, you know, the fact that Jane has terminal cancer or stage four that doesn't seem to be going very well. Um, and uh, the direct threat to his life that Gore the God Butcher represents. And also, you know, the gallivanting across space and Thor being the most overtly comic hero uh, that the MCU has left. And I, to my, for my money, maybe the best performed. I think Chris Hemsworth has really tapped into something so like really lovable lunkhead uh, special energy with this performance where um his mere presence is enough to make this feel like a thor movie and everything he does in it no matter how contrived it might be in the plot i find just you know superficially at least enjoyable to watch um but you know the there is there is a real sense of it having its priorities split it, it but I, what i appreciate the movie in the macro sense and this is not something that i think um is is all that deep under the surface is that you know, it's a movie about, as it starts very pointedly with Thor questioning his own purpose in the wake of the events of Endgame and sort of gallivanting around the universe with the Guardians of the Galaxy um, and being too powerful. It's like at the end stage of an RPG, he's like way over leveled and he's like the, the Guardians are kind of ticked off with him because they just sit around. He comes into the last second and he ends up causing 
more harm than good in some cases, and it's all amusing and light, and eventually they part ways. Um, and the movie is trying to look, trying to for him to find that purpose. He is afraid of being vulnerable. He wants to keep the people he loves most at arm's length. The movie is at its best when exploring what soured between his relationship with Jane, which you know, for my money, is is the kind of material that could be theoretically extrapolated to be a whole Disney Plus series. But I'm glad that it hasn't been because the montage they make of it here is so economical and the best part of the movie. Um, and um, and so it's also coming out of part in the MCU where post Endgame, I feel like the franchise is really struggling to find its continued purpose. I have faith, you know, that fans at least will feel that it gets there eventually. I don't know what any of these fucking things mean, what a secret war is. I don't know. But I do think that eventually they're going to hit upon one of those other big macro arcs that people nerd out over, and it will feel like everything is sort of building towards another climax of a kind. But certainly in Phase 4 so, now, uh, so far, everything has felt a little bit aimless and random, and this movie taps into that energy, confronts it. I don't, you know, be overstating the case to say that it's being actively critical of the Marvel framework, but it does dovetail. What the character is going through here does dovetail with the movie's place in its overall um, sort of the, the framework of the franchise that it's in. And that creates uh, uh, what I found an interesting enough synergy to overcome how janky some of the plotting is here. I mean, really janky towards the end and how it maneuvers the characters together and you know, the, the, the Gore's plan doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They don't really sell a certain realization that he doesn't make, even if you can blame a lot of things on the Necrosword. And to Patches' point earlier, the timelines in the way that Patches is talking about are whatever in this movie, they're fine. But the actual chronology of the movie I found confusing. I found it really irksome that the first scene in the movie, you know, it starts before the Marvel fanfare. They really get right into it because it's so dramatically... Virgin. I mean, it is sort of heart rending. This uh, gore, you know, carrying his dying daughter in his arms to the desert, like begging for some you know, one of his god, whoever that is, to uh, to save him. Uh, it bothered me that I didn't know when that was happening. Like, I don't care what the year is in its fictive, you know, alien world that he lives on. Although I would have appreciated, you know, if they had named the planet that he lives on and like gave it a sense of place. I it, it missed me, but I. That scene could have taken place 10,000 years before this movie started. It could have taken place five minutes before this movie started. Um, and I really felt like the character was fighting an uphill battle from not understanding the extent to which he'd been corrupted by the Necrostore, the extent to which his quest for vengeance against all the gods, which is something that I think bottom viewers could essentially be sympathetic to, uh, is sort of is not given its proper due and unspooled to the degree that it needs to. Because the movie is so busy doing other things, some of which are very funny. I mean, like this is like Ragnarok, a movie that no matter, and we'll get to Taika Waititi and his overexposure and his yeah, thing. I want to talk about people are getting that. annoyed with it. <laughs> but like in the context of the MCU, the idiosyncratic sense of humor that he brings to it is so refreshing uh, in a series that, as I mentioned in my review, and I only say that because I think it's nauseating when you hear people just say things out loud they've already written. So I provide that disclaimer um you know the so much of the series relies on the kind of like the wi-fi password is shambhala kind of humor where it's just superheroes doing uh you know the, the humor of finding superheroes doing banal everyday things and the taika waititi movies are two of the only films in the mcu that actually try and find other sources of comedy and have an outside sense of humor and are a bit wackier in a way that works and so while it, it fell very flat for me in some of Taika Waititi's other movies, and Jojo Rabbit in particular, um, here I think it plays. Anyway, that's my spiel. Oh, that's a, that was all at once. I thought there would be some back and forth, but that was, that was a lot. <laughs> well, I don't know. I know we have some mic issues this we week. We don't want so to overlap. To yeah, because <laughs> yeah, then, you know, that's not fighting. Um, that's not fighting, no. Patches, to go back to your thing, <clears throat> I agree that comic book run is amazing. And people should read it. Everything that makes that comic book run good has been adapted in a way to make it completely different for the movie. Uh, this movie is Taika Waititi makes a sequel he contractually has to make and has a midlife crisis during it. Shooting a four hour movie that he edits down to under two hours. And it's about kids. <laughs> That's what this Thor Love and Thunder is about. I'm amazed 
they have advertised it entirely without talking about children since it starts with Gore and his daughter and the <clears throat> MacGuffin we're chasing to make these characters continually face off is Gore goes to New Asgard and abducts all the children and takes them, you know, to the shadow realm uh, where there's no color, which is oh, wow. a fun so visual. Weird. Yeah, this is, yeah, it's this and, is like uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I didn't expect that. It's uh, yeah, in the comics. Even in some, in the comics, Gore has a son, um, and and a wife. Uh, so I guess they just combine the two, and you get a daughter. But whatever. Yes. Uh, well, it's a daughter that is played by Chris Hemsworth, real life daughter. So maybe oh. that helped uh, influence uh, her casting. They were but, all in the bubble. Uh, yeah. To give to give the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang uh, comparison, there's like I think. A direct visual allusion to that because he basically makes a child catcher's you know cart to put these kids in so i don't think you're that far off uh in the influences that also being said since it's come out we've learned that uh peter dinklage jeff goldblum and lena hetty who is actually being sued uh for it right now all shot things for this movie which i imagine is a lot of what's missing from this movie which is gore actually killing gods because one of the assumptions of this movie is gods are bad. I'm assuming that they're able to do that assumption, both based on the strength of the opening scene David's talking about, but also on the fact that like that's basically what the goal of Eternals was. So if you've mm. seen Eternals, you're on the wavelength that Marvel Universe gods are not benevolent. They're all kind of like assholes. Uh, this movie does nothing to counter that. Um, so I don't think it's really... Um, coping with a lot of the stuff that the comic book run was coping with. Instead, what it is, is this version of Thor is entirely Chris Hemsworth's at this point. And much like he, they make it his plot line in the movie, because this is the truth of Chris Hemsworth in the Marvel Universe, he cannot operate alone. If he is alone, he is boring. Even if you put just Loki with him, that's a little bit boring. Uh, Thor needs something that is outside his realm of understanding. Even if you go back to the first movies, like fish out of water thing, uh, the reason like Thor two doesn't work as well is because Thor is constantly in a story world he should know the most about because it's like Asgardian magic and he's a Thor god of thunder. Uh, so like his whole like stumble with it and trying to redeem Loki just kind of plays like false incident. Here, the revelation is. Natalie Portman wanted to come back and is game for everything, I think, for the first time since the first Thor movie. And that makes her character so much better. And not only is she like given things to do, but the other thing Taika Waititi has restored the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for better or for worse, is this movie acknowledges that people can be horny for each other. Usually we skip from like the kiss to the kid, uh, ever, especially ever since the Disney sale. Uh, because, you know, we're got, we got a haze code Disney product, even though that doesn't exist anymore. But this movie has uh, Chris Hemsworth's butt. It has a kiss uh, that is actually romantic. It has two rock dudes eventually forming another baby rock dude, uh, which is sort of like watching a sex scene, I guess. <laughs> um, but it's like it has acknowledgments of all these things uh, and that people could be attracted to each other. Uh, in a way that the MCU has sort of abandoned. Uh, that being all that stuff being said, the two things I like about Thor: Love and Thunder, and why I think it's going to be successful, even if it is going to end up being slight, is it's quick and humorously paced, and because of its subject matter, I think it's going to be a good family film. Uh, it's you're not going to have any debates like you did with Multiverse of Madness where it's like, maybe this is too much for young kids, or uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, where it's just like, surely your kids seen movies from 2002, right? Like, none of those things are going to be issues here. Uh, there's a very children are our future type of message built into it. So I'm, I think it's going to be very successful in that route. Does it do anything to push Thor forward? I... I'm not sure if most of the... I think most of the runtime we're just watching Chris Hemsworth uh, react to his castmates. I'll be interested to see how he comes out on the other side of this because they end it in a way where Thor could become its own thing and this might be the last Thor movie where we're like, it's based on 
these comic books because it does open up a path that Thor has never been on before. Uh, that is very exciting for me as somebody who knows the lore and knows the MCU. Or they could just fold him right back into the next big event and Thor once again is worried about Infinity Stones like he was for, you know, the other period of time. It's just it, it, <laughs> taking baths in the caves and having dreams and Age of Ultron nonsense. Yeah, it's interesting that they did market this as being so close to that other Gore the God Butcher comic book line because this feels so much like it has elements of did. the Marvel. Well, I mean, it has elements of the Marvel Cinematic Universe like trope, you know, some like love of flat lighting, like uh, not necessarily inventive camera moves on like very basic fight scenes. All that stuff is there. But this feels like a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie in a way that the other ones felt like maybe they were adaptations. This one doesn't feel like that to me. Um, I don't know if we want to spoiler gong it, but I could well bring up the thing that I'm talking about. Uh, well, maybe wait for that for one second, because I wanted to pull back and, and gauge. Uh, David mentioned this earlier, just like the Taiki, Taika Watiti of it all. Um, and something I was thinking about while rereading the comics was like, I can't. I'm I'm not sure I've ever really liked a Taika movie. Uh, I am not a fan mm -hmm. of Thor Ragnarok. I know it has a lot of fans and so i i say that i'm in the minority they're not enjoying it i don't like like this affect or this disconnection i i find taika to even when acting like i recently watched all of our flag means death which a lot of people have emotionally connected to or at least really enjoyed the the, the faithful representation that it's that it's bringing to uh, a, a gay couple while all the pirate nonsense is happening um and that's great. I'm glad people enjoy it. I find Taika as a presence, an acting presence, and somewhat as a director to have this kind of like James Franco-esque like affect to everything or this disconnect, this disinterest in being there. Like he's somehow bored, even though he's making the thing. Like even uh, there's a little bit of it in Jojo Rabbit where it's like, it's a goof. It's a joke. Even though we're talking about World War II and, and people dying. like. It's a joke. Um, and Thor Ragnarok, it's like there could be something interesting about this character going on this quest and dealing with Hela erupting and trying to befriend Hulk. But it's like, oh, it's a joke. It's a joke. And what worried me about Thor Love and Thunder is that something that has a lot of gravity to it in the comics. And I'm not expecting a faithful adaptation. Marvel and Feige, Ken Feige have never worked that way. Um, but I, I want him to make like an authentic movie. I don't know what. He stands between. I've never liked it. I don't really like his early movies, Eagle versus Shark and, and Boy. Again, they just like feel like they have this affectation of, of indie quirk cinema. The only movie. Actually, I lied. He has made one movie. I absolutely love what we do in the shadows. And I think that's because it is wall to wall comedy. And it is. Do you not like and you win within its world? world. Uh, I Hunt like the world of people. people. I'm like, I'm in the I'm in the middle on that one. I, I like all the performances a lot. I just think the, the story is kind of a mess. But um, I don't know. I'm like, I have a I, people love Taika Waititi and they love what he's brought to the MCU. I'm just I can't get in on it. And, and hearing you, uh, Dave, talk about Lightyear. And I've seen other people mention that, like, Taika doesn't work in, in Lightyear. He's like the person you add to a movie to be the goof and to remind people that we're not taking this stuff all that seriously. When all you want is these movies to take their own worlds seriously. I don't want people to wink at me and say this is we all know this is really stupid. But uh, we'll, we'll dress it up and try and make it as cool as possible. But it's like, no, believe in it. Live this. Like, I think it's cool. Like, do it. And I don't know. I think the, pro the problem you're going to have with Thor Love and Thunder then is that um, half of the movie is what you're talking about, except none of that is allowed to touch gore because Christian Bale's doing something else and they are not going to joke about it, at least not in the same way. And as David was alluding to, at the end of the movie, they have to push those two attitudes together immediately. And the way that Taiko Titi decides to do it is to whiplash between the two levels of seriousness very, very fast. And so that either works for you or it doesn't. Uh, I think it, 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 it isn't as emotionally strong as I would have liked it to be, but I do think he eventually settles in something, even if it is like in the last 10 minutes. 
Yeah, I mean, I think what Patches is talking about about YTZ are two different things in a way. I mean, the seriousness of the tone of his movies is no bearing on how seriously he takes the projects themselves. Um, I think it's probably wrong to presume that he is being sort of flippant uh, about the work that he's doing. Oh, I mean, Jojo I'm, I'm Rabbit not even, is... I'm not, I'm not even suggesting that he is not taking it seriously. I'm saying there's some sort of, like, blockade for me in the movies where it's like sure the, like the wink aspect of it I, i'm not i'm not yeah, trying yeah, to challenge okay, his integrity or what he brings okay, to the movies fair. but and, i'm like you know how there's um, like certain franco performances where you're just like can you be in the movie or like can you be yeah present? but i think comparing it to to franco sets off a, a couple of other alarms just because you know with with ytt being ubiquitous recently um and i think you know for for me I don't nothing was the last straw I saw and enjoyed Thor Love and Thunder more than most, but um, him being in Lightyear was really something that I don't think did him any favors, but uh, in this respect anyway. But with Franco, I mean, you're talking about someone who was overexposed, who was doing too many things at once that people eventually began to think uh, rightly, in his case, was not giving, um, you know, his all to any of his projects, really. And... uh, and I mean, there are other things there that hopefully Tyke has nothing in common with. But I think that, uh, you know, there, there is an element of that. That's like maybe Tyke is doing too many things. He has another movie in the can already. He's had it in the can for a long time now. But Next Goal Wins with Michael Fassbender. Um, you know, he he's, does all those TV shows. Um, he's in Lightyear, like I said. So I think that there is a, a temptation to conflate, you know, the, the tone of his movies with how seriously he takes making them. But I also sympathize with what Patrick is saying, and that like it is kind of a block. It is an obstacle to, like I think one of the, the the things that surprised me about Love and Thunder, and that maybe allowed me to grade it on a curve a little bit, was that and not not just its place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how rare it is that any of these movies deal with with things as serious as as cancer and uh, approach found family as meaningfully as this movie does in its own way. Um, but that like in spite of everything. I still found some of the stuff that the movie gets into to be rendered poignantly. I think I'm an easy mark for some of it. I mean, like, you know, stuff, you know, parents and kids, and I don't want to give too much away, but the way that it does things, I mean, it, it, it is not rocket science to work <laughs> on me, but, um, I, say, but like, I feel like I'm going to be susceptible. I'm bracing for, uh, yeah, but, um, you know, it, it, I don't know if it, I think this is maybe as well as it could have worked with, YTT's approach. Um, I don't, I, I don't, and certainly in the Marvel, again, I don't know if it was possible for this movie to be more poignant than it already is. But yeah, I mean, listen, Taika YTD is going to make what Taika YTD is going to make. And to ask him to be anyone else at this point, when, it was, when his personality is so clearly baked into his work, is probably futile, um, particularly when it can, is capable of turning out things as, as solid as something like Hunt for the Will of People um, and as particular. Um, and we should be happy that he's doing his thing, uh, and is probably on the further end of the spectrum in terms of video sync- in terms of idiosyncrasies of Marvel directors. Like, is he, you know, the kind of auteur that I would pick out of ad to to really push Marvel somewhere more interesting? No, but he's got a lot more flavor than some of the other people that have had direct these movies. Yeah, um, which I which I think is why you know Thor four is the perfect project for him. There's this weird like. To go back to the comics, if you are reading all of Marvel comics, like, month to month, week to week, it would be insane of you to be like, I want them all to be good. Like, the whole point of that type of release schedule is to allow for artists or writers to, like, try crazy shit. To try 12 issues of three Thor timelines as he's fighting a god butcher. Like, that sort of thing. The movies can't really do that, but we do get, like four or five entries a year now if you count disney plus series so i am perfectly fine with the thor movies being an occasional taika watiti movie in the middle of whatever mess of multiverse shit that everybody else has to deal with like i'm i'm fine with these little tinier entries it's like you know what there's not an infinity stone you know what they could undo all this if they want but i had an okay time at the movies and there were some goats that screamed enough that i laughed at it was it was pretty good. Yeah, I think my my hope as a as a movie goer is not that it's like tying into the larger picture necessarily, but that 
Thor gets an arc like that something the, the movie's about something and that the characters make meaningful choices um, and I've seen that poignancy happen with this set of iconography with Jason Aaron's run and um, I want to see it whether it's been completely remixed or not uh, I just yeah the Taika I don't know the Taika of it all worries me as a prospective movie goer but you guys are Guys are convincing me. Think I'm gonna see it. I think I'm uh, gonna see Love Thor, Thor Love and Thunder. I, I I do think that he's in for he Taika Waititi is in for some sort of backlash, um, you know, deserved or not. Um, but I think that's just you know it's also part and parcel of when you have a specific thing that you do and it calcifies in a certain easily recognizable way, and then you don't leverage that in a way that seems artistically um, to, to grow artistically and you sort of get stuck in a holding pattern. I think that's the perfect recipe for people to, to be sick of you. But um, you know, he, as I said, he has another movie in the can that is completely different can of wax and ball of wax, can of wax, whatever. It's in the and, can, uh, the can, it's in the can, yeah. the can of wax. Okay. And he has the television shows that he's involved with in various capacities that people seem to love across the board. So uh, he'll probably be okay. Oh, I'm, but I'm not I, worried know, about him. The, 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 Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe can really only afford to kick its tires like this for so long, even if I find ways to enjoy it and appreciate what it's doing. I do think sooner rather than later, they need to start building towards another clear arc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. give us one, David. We're just after Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Those are both well, building to the I thing. Part, part of it is that well, Spider-Man was, was responding to other <laughs> arcs made by other companies. And I David wants continuity. And so, David wants crossovers. Um, David wants a bigger yeah. picture here. Take him to the next Avengers movie. <laughs> Where's Loki and, season two? And, you know, in the case of, uh, of Sam Raimi's movie, you know, it was tied into the other stuff in a way that I found nauseating. I mean, I liked the movie well enough, but for what Sam Raimi brought to it, but that didn't feel like it was building towards anything so much as responding to something that was homework that I wasn't interested in the first place. I detested WandaVision. So I, I want another climactic feeling of the of the, everything converging into one and not just every knot being tied off in a corner together. Mm. Dave, uh, well, to, well, to wait, to wrap yeah. this up, I feel like you teased a big spoiler that you were going to say, and we should ring the gong and you should just say it and um, and discuss and, and then we'll wrap up. So say your spoiler. Uh, OK, here we go. Big spoiler. Love is a person. Love is a person. Oh, you mean like the Thanos was trying to court death in the comics? Love is an is a person. Love is the name of uh, Gore's daughter, which Thor adopts at the end of the movie. The end of the movie is, and they were called Love and Thunder. And then the title comes oh, up. Oh, Jesus. So wait, so like every, um, so like every Marvel property right now, which is trying to find what Gen Z folks, they can kind of like work in the mix so that people uh... younger than us care about the Marvel universe. There's a Thor component of this now. There is a Thor kid. No, sh no. Well, no. Because she is like six, seven. She'll grow up. Much she'll younger. Grow up. But she'll yeah. grow up. And well, and she has like a different set of power. The thing I like about love, uh, first of all, it's weird that it's his actual daughter. Uh, I assume that's going to change at some point. Uh, it, but if she doesn't grow up, maybe she still sticks around. What I really like about it is this is this doesn't have a comics parallel. This is not something they've done with Thor. Um is being like now Thor has a child and they are a team and they are going to be a team going together righting wrongs I think is a incredibly exciting place to take this version of Thor that keeps him out of like Beta Ray Bill and all the weird nonsense uh, rabbit holes you is could Beta take Ray Bill on. in the movie no what the I was what the fuck what do, what do what, can you tell me we're four yeah. movies into the Thor property, and there's no, yeah. no CG Beta Ray Bill. Do you think that either I, I, there's one of two things that are is must be true? Kevin Feige hates Beta Ray Bill, which if so, fuck him. Or someone else owns the right to Beta Ray Bill, and they can't use him. Why is Beta Ray Bill not appeared in any of these movies? I mean, I think they're saving him for when they get closer to the thing David wants, which is Secret Wars. 
because if really? you remember the comic book storylines, <laughs> David, David knows what that is. But yes, it's I'm it's what I'm rooting for. If you remember the comic book storyline, Secret Wars, there was a whole place of the battle planet where all of the cops were just Thors. Uh, so this movie seeds the idea that there can be multiple Thors at once with the mighty Thor. Uh, so I think we will be getting Thors uh, in Battle World when we get there. Wow! But the nice thing okay. is, right. you could also that could also involve uh, our Thor and love. I'm just saying, in terms of like, you know, we're getting Guardians of the Galaxy three and Will Poulter's playing Adam Warlock, and people are like Adam Warlock from the comics. Oh my god! And I'm like, I'm I'm very happy that this movie is like here's a new status quo quo for thor that you have never seen before and i think that makes it interesting i was trying to talk to joanna robinson i don't think this has happened in the mcu since colson uh and colson got spoiled by uh joss whedon but like the marvel cinematic universe doesn't make up characters so the fact that it feels comfortable enough to do something like this uh is a step in the right direction says me yeah, that's cool. David, uh, Beta Ray Bill thoughts? Uh, I just Google imaged him. And, <laughs> Describe uh, what you're seeing. <laughs> Describe what you're seeing for people who don't know what Beta Ray Bill is. All right, let me yeah, pull what back What are you looking uh, at okay, there? Okie dokie, okie dokie here. So we got a... Uh, <laughs> he looks like a, like a uh-huh. Ghostbusters uh-huh. werewolf dog thing. Okay. Uh, but, you know, like Zool's minions, but okay, uh, yeah. on, on two legs. Um, and I'm getting the vibe, maybe it's just his name, certainly not his chompers, that he's a pretty good hang and like a cool dude. Um, even though he looks, you know, he looks yeah, like he's a, pretty chill, a badass he's got a big, big mouth, yeah. He's got a, he's got a big old mouth. Um, am I, am I about right? I think, I think yeah, you're that, the right that's Bill. I would have said a uh, man with emaciated horse face. That's yeah, how I, I used I think, to I think sure, using sure. horse in your description is, is key here, but. Yeah, he's like a horse. He's like a horse skeleton with like <laughs> one tiny layer of flesh. But he's also uh, dressed also as Thor. Helmet. I think that's key. He looks like Thor, but he and is a horse. I'm looking at one uh, panel of a Thor comic <laughs> that that seems to imply that they are lovers. Uh, comics are great. So, Ooh, comics, comics are great. You know what? I support it. that's gonna do it for this week's fighting in the war room it was two segments with three subjects because comic books are its own thing until next week where we will be back with a very special episode sometime in the week that's all i could say right now uh but check it out hey no you know what there's more housekeeping i could say more things next week we're gonna have a very special episode it's gonna be a non-numbered episode or it's gonna be 301 because next week is not the quarter quill we're going to do a call-in quarter quell. <laughs> Dave is committed to learning the format so we could live stream it. I'm guessing fitwr.podcast at gmail.com will eventually get a YouTube channel. You gotta stream somewhere. And, you know, Google owns those both those things. So look for that sometime this month. I'm going to guess in about two weeks. Uh, but next week, we're going to be doing something special. Uh, a little crossover, different format. That'll be coming Joe out Joe Rogan finally coming in the war room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Finally getting some of that Spotify money. Um, And then, yeah, the week after that, Quarter Quill, Katie will be here. And then the week after that, normal episode, Katie's out again. And that'll be all of July. That's your housekeeping. Until then, tell every people, everybody where they can find you online. Yes, I am Matt Patches. I am the deputy editor over at Polygon. I'm on leave right now, but uh, go read Polygon because they're doing a good job without me. Uh, but not as good a job with when I'm there. Let's be clear. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I also wanted to say that I'm using Letterboxd a lot more. I know David is the king of Letterboxd, oh, no. but I am on Letterboxd and I'm uh, loving I Letterboxd. I, I gotta say that. it. I just gotta. It's a great alternative to to Twitter. I get to see what everyone's watching. Get to leave little reviews of all the weird black exploitation movies and watch on Criterion Channel. It's great. Love Letterboxd. So uh, go find me on Letterboxd too. And also, if you need uh, lots of content to listen to while you drive around this summer, fightingintheworm.com, you can listen to all our old back episodes. I bet that we have reviewed every Thor movie uh, on this podcast. I think yep. that, Sounds safe. that fits within the Patches, span of time. Have, have you watched Aussie Davis's Cotton Comes to Harlem yet? No. Should I do that? 
Oh, it's fantastic. That is a uh, that is a Criterion Channel perennial, uh, but really, really excellent. Going to put on my um, letterbox wish list, which uh, if you follow me, you'd see me update it. There you go. Cotton comes to Harlem. Rules. Um, I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and on IndieWire, uh, where I have reviewed at great length, um, even longer length than I monologued about Thor Love and Thunder. I have written about Thor Love and Thunder. Uh, if, if for some reason that still appeals to you after listening to this episode, you can go find my review there. I'll also be writing about um, Christoph Kishlovsky's Three Colors, because I am nothing if not someone who contains multitudes this week. Um, so, because that is being re-released, uh, starting with Blue this Friday in New York. Well worth checking out if you happen to be in the city. But uh, what else? Right, you can find us all together, one happy family on iTunes and Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review on iTunes. I'll read it live on the show. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also find me on the Trial by Content podcast over on The Ringer, where this week we were debating the best needle drop in TV history. You can also find our co-host Katie Rich on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. You can also find her on the Little Gold Men podcast over at Vanity Fair. They talk about awards season television show and have some fantastic interviews. And uh, you can find us all on Twitter at FITWR, where you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was, in honor of Thor Love and Thunder, what's cinema's greatest mythical weapon? Also check FITWR if you want to figure out when next week's episode's coming out. That might be helpful. Or not. Whatever. We'll see you whenever. We've been here for like 11 years. We'll just, we'll be here. We'll be here next week. Could say what I could say Trip drop a lovely dream